Father, your love is amazing. Your grace transcends understanding. It doesn't go beyond our belief, though. We believe. We are humbled. Humbled by what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. Humbled by what you are yet doing through your Spirit in us. Through your truth as the Spirit applies the truth of Christ and His gospel to us. We're humbled. Father, we have dedicated a time here to seeking your face as a church through some prayer and fasting and special meetings and personal commitments to every day be seeking you. And what we're doing is we are wanting to see you clearly. Just believing as we were talking about on Wednesday night that what we so desperately need is we need to see you as you truly are. And then in that vision, that clear vision of you the result will be we'll see ourselves as we truly are our sin as it truly is and your heart toward a lost world and our part in that so God reveal yourself to us your heart toward this church we don't come dictating what we want you to do. We come saying, your will be done. Your will be done right here in this church as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. Thank you. Father, now as the word is preached, We're here to listen. Speak to us. Corporately and individually. You know every piece of our heart, every desire, aspiration. You see our attitude as it is. know what our fears and questions are. Just praying that your truth through your servant would be sent forth in power as your spirit activates the gift of preaching. Lifting up Jesus Christ and ultimately glorifying the Father. 
toward that end, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Chris Chalk, come on up here. If you've been here for a number of weeks, you've already probably seen Chris up here on the stage. He's opened the word of God to us before. Chris is a great friend of mine, a brother in the Lord. He is a gifted communicator of the word of God and a radical follower of Jesus Christ. So it is just a privilege to turn it over to you, bud. Good afternoon. It is the afternoon now. It's, a, it's always a privilege to, uh, to preach the Word of God. It's, and I say it's a privilege, of course, because as, um, as preachers, we get to herald the Word of God. And, um, you know, it's always said in, in Sunday school, kind of like a recruiting line to get Sunday schools recruited is, you know, you learn so much more than teach, uh, when, you, when you teach, you know. And as we're, as we're like diving into Scriptures, the Scripture is just piercing our own hearts and uh and uh as preachers we all should tremble at the word of god and uh i do and um i know that this is a privilege to be able to do this and that uh i am nothing but a jar of clay as as paul writes and that is for the purpose so that god will get the glory and not the jar of clay amen um with that uh if we could just um spend a moment in prayer i um this this I just uh, sharing in the first service that it really had a challenge this week to focus, and I don't know if anyone could relate to that. As um, been so, I've been so blessed and encouraged to uh, to be a part of the uh, of the Sunday evenings and when, and Wednesday just to come corporately to seek the face of God. And um, but I just felt all this week, as you know, even just spending time with the Lord, that there was just this uh, every time, even even preparing this message, there was this pull to be distracted, and, uh, and I know that it is spiritual. And uh, I don't know if any of you had that issue this week, but um, uh, just realize uh, more and more that we have an enemy within, and we also have an enemy um, on the outside, uh, an enemy whose purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And we also have, as Jesus said, we have those, e- those evil things that come out of the heart naturally. This enemy just knows how to bring those out. Um, so I just wanted us to pray, and uh, I wanted us to uh, pray for the purpose of preparing our minds when, you know, when, when you listen to a sermon, right, I mean, this day and age, um, you know, like even the way media advertises, it's all in snippets, right? And the reason why it's all in snippets is because that's how we process information today. I mean, you look at uh, presidential debates now, like in the rebuttals and the, and the periods versus, you know, what they were in Abraham Lincoln's time, right? There would, there would be like an hour-long rebuttal and people would be engaged, but now it's like you got one minute and a half to make your point and do it. And... What I wanted to challenge you today as we, as, we, as we hear the word of God, let us engage our minds and know that there is an art of listening, okay? Not because I have anything special to say, no, but because this is the word of God, and that's where I want to put the emphasis on. So let us prepare our minds to receive that. Can we do that? So let's just uh, spend a, a few moments in prayer here, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get into the word.
Father God, don't know how you do it. Don't know how you're able to to listen and comprehend all the prayers of the saints at the same time. But I know it's because you're God and you're able to do all things and you hear the prayers of your people. And God, we just want to come before you with a, just with a humble and broken heart. Desiring to really seek your face, God. So God, I just pray that as believers that we would engage our minds in listening to your word. Not so that we could just be puffed up for knowledge, God. No, that's so that the gospel would grip our hearts and we would be transformed. And God, that is the, the, our heart's prayer here at Cornerstone. As we seek your face, we, we have this prayer and this desire to be filled with your spirit, God. And that is what we are seeking. And we are not seeking that for any, any selfish intent, God. We want to be filled with your spirit so that we could be bold proclaimers of the life-giving message of Jesus to our city that desperately needs it, to our family members who are not saved. So God, I'm just going to ask right now that you would give us a vision of your glory. Because I know that when we see your glory, we see your divine attributes, we understand more of your character. Like Moses, we leave transformed. Like the prophets of old who had, who had seen your vision, like Isaiah. And God, that's what we're asking. And just forgive us, Lord, because... Uh, Our selfish hearts tend to get in the way of that. And forgive us, Lord, because as we look into the text today, we we are so prone to to wander, Lord. We are so prone to seek after other things other than the glory of God. So God, pray that your word would set people's hearts on fire for the sole purpose of bringing glory back to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. It's been a blessing to uh, be here with you again, and uh, just had a quick question for everybody in this room. Um, and you don't have to raise your hand. I just, if you'd answer it to yourself, how many of you desire wholeheartedly to see a revival? I don't know if you've ever read revival stories, but I, I read them all the time because when I'm when I'm feeling discouraged, uh, I'll just read just how God moves through history and. Uh, and you hear of the great revival stories, even in our recent times, the Welsh revival, just thousands of people coming to the Lord. I mean, you're talking like, like there was no like preacher preaching, but yet people were, were you know, people were, were like the gospel was like unlocking in their hearts. And there was just mass revival, people coming to their knees and just being brought in repentance, relationships restored, hearts renewed. And, and uh, not saying that that's, you know, putting revival in a box and that's always what it looks like. But I believe that it's our heart's prayer here at Cornerstone that we too want to see revival. We want to see things that are dead brought to life. And uh, Brad had shared on Wednesday, and I, this is, I agree that this is one of the most important things is your view of God. Because how you view God will dictate how you live your life. That's the bottom line. For example, if you view God as a, uh, just this tyrant uh, um, you know, like tyrant boss that is just saying, do this, do that, you know, do this, do this, then that's going to affect how you live. 
You're going to live a life of fear. You're going to live a life of people pleasing. You're going to live a life where, like, where, where, where it's built on insecurities. Whereas on the flip side, if your view of God is the glory of God through the gospel that he gives us in his word, it's liberating. Because one of the central truths that you and I will come to, all right, is once you've placed your trust in Jesus, God can love you no less, nor can he love you anymore because he's already loved you perfectly. And in that is your security. That regardless of what Chris does, regardless of whether Chris was a good husband one day, a bad husband, a good father, a bad husband, a good friend, whatever, I'm still secure because of what Jesus has done, not what I've done. And I'm praying that God would also give you a glorious vision. And when we speak of revival, I'm going to tell you right now that we will not get very far, we will not get very far if you don't have an understanding of the glory of God. And how the gospel fits into that. Next question. When was the last time you preached the gospel to yourself? Was it when you were saved? Was it this morning? Was it last week? Answer that honestly. When was the last time that you had literally preached the gospel to yourself? And one of the problems today is that we somehow have come up with a crazy idea that, that the gospel is only the doorway to the Christian faith. Maybe it's only the ABCs of the Christian faith. Tim Keller put it, and he says, it's not the ABCs of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the faith. Another Christian pastor said, you know what? The gospel is not only the diving board into the pool. It's also the ocean that you dive into, and you don't ever get out of the pool. You just go deeper into it. For some Christians, it's, like I said, simply become that doorway. For other Christians, the gospel has just become a ticket, a ticket out of hell. Before taking a break from Romans, Brad was preaching on that pendulum that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 6 and 7. And you have to understand that's a spiritual truth. It's all of our, every single one of us here, okay? There's not one person that is exempt. All of us in our hearts, we, we swing on that pendulum. We're either on this side, right, where we're, we're legalistic, right? Or, or we swing to the other side where we're like licensed to sin. And that's where we are. And you have to ask, well, where's the balance, how do I know when I'm living like, you know, in that perfect balance? Or is, is balance even the goal of the Christian life? <clears throat> the simple answer is this. It's the gospel of Jesus. And I don't mean to sound cliche, but we need to get this right for the foundation of our Christian life. Because everything, everything in the word and everything from the Christian life flows out of the gospel. That's it. There's no way around it. Last time I preached, I explained that we're to understand the story of God in order to understand the scriptures. And don't forget that there is a trajectory. There is a purpose in all of history. There's a movement in scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, right? It's not like these interconnected books. No, there's this backdrop. And you know what it is? It's the glory of God. It's not, like I said, it's not whether you and I had a bad day or a good day or whether you or I choose to believe or not. The backdrop of the story of God is his own glory, his fame, and his namesake. Now, does he care about us? Absolutely. But we have to remember that priorities, all right, need to be placed on, that, on the glory of the triune God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is this. It says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Know that every creed and confession needs to be weighed by the word of the Lord 
and that the only writing that is both inerrant and infallible is the Word of God. But a question I have when reading like confessions, creeds, or, or statements, and even, even Christian authors is does this conform to biblical truth? And uh, some of you know a pastor by the name of John Piper. Uh, reading him years ago really helped me to understand the glory of God and, and, and what we play. That, and the, con- the, the, the premise of his book, Desiring God, was that God is most glorified when you and I are most satisfied in him. Meaning that God gets glory when you and I delight in him first. And not that God is against our desires, but when our desires and our affections are set on God and his glory, that's when he's most glorified. So when it's this, this like mutual relationship of, of, of working together for his glory. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And it was on the mountaintop that Moses was given a new vision of the glory of God. And this is how the Lord replied to Moses' request. So Moses like, God, show me your glory. God says this in Exodus 33, 9. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will, I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Did you catch that? Did you see how the glory of God was revealed to Moses? God revealed his character and attributes to Moses. They're directly tied to his glory. In Exodus 34, God clearly spells out what this new vision of his glory is. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. So not only did he tell Moses, I mean, it's Yahweh, but this is what what Yahweh is like. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Did you catch that again? It's his character that was being revealed. So that when, when the glory of God passed before Moses, what did Moses scream back? I mean, what did Moses understand? It was his attributes. It was his character. John Piper explains this. The term glory of God in the Bible refers in general to the beauty of God's manifold perfections. It is an attempt to put into words what God is like in his magnificence and purity. It refers to his fullness of all that is good. And the term might focus on his different attributes from time to time, like his power and wisdom and mercy and justice, because each one is awesome in its magnitude and quality. But in general, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful being. Wow. If you want an extensive teaching on the glory of God, read John Piper's article, The Glory of God as Goal of History. The bottom line is, yes, there is a plan. There is a purpose. There is a trajectory of the story of God. And it is moving. And if you don't understand the glory of God, you're going to miss out. What is the ultimate goal of God in history, people? What is it? That's right. His glory. His glory. That's the ultimate purpose of history. It's for his namesake. It's for the fame of God. So when you hear those concepts of the glory of God, you hear for his namesake or you hear for his fame, those are all for the glory of God. That's what it's referring to. And all of history is moving to this end. And let's not forget that we have the end picture. Read Revelation 7. Read Revelation 21. It gives us the picture. Let us not forget that God is going to get glory no matter what. That's really comforting. 
Because whether I choose to follow him or not, or whether you choose to follow him or not, whether this church decides to be obedient to what God is calling to do, God is going to get glory. Because God is God. But the awesome thing is this. God desires to use the church. Man. And now it's just like, I just want to be a part of it. God, I want to be a part of that. I want to be part of this story. And, and you and I both connect with that. That's why the movie industry sells millions of tickets, right? Because we see a movie, like this like epic movie, and there's this backdrop of a story. An example is like Avatar, right? Like, you know, it blew people's minds away. And not so much because of the technology that was, even though that was cool. It was that there was a great story. And it was one man just getting wrapped up into that story. And brothers and sisters, God is calling us as a church, individual, corporately, to come on, partner with me. And isn't that, doesn't that blow your mind away? The God who created the heavens and the earth, who, who is a perfect relationship within himself, within his triune nature, right? Doesn't need us, but yet he, he beckons us to come and participate with him. I, I marvel at that. And the awesome thing is he invites us to participate with him in relationship and in community. Because church, when we're in gospel community, we're reflecting one of his attributes, community. Triune God is a perfect community, amen? And then when we're in gospel community, when we're forgiving each other, when we're sacrificing for each other, when we're uplifting each other, guess what? We're reflecting his glory because that's, that's his attributes. But sometimes it may seem as evil reigns at times, or sometimes we may second-guess God We don't embrace his sovereignty. We think that somehow God has lost control of this situation. I mean, like some of us are wondering, like, yeah, there's a documentary out that's going to be released in theaters called 2016. The premise is what's going to happen if Obama gets reelected. And some of us are like, God, are you really in control? Some of us are like, God is in perfect control. But let us not forget Acts 4, 27 through 28 For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let us never forget the simple truth that God is sovereign and God is in control and he is going to get glory. Amen? Think about even the enemies of God. The enemies of God never thwart the plan of God. Never. In fact, the enemies of God... Execute the plans of God at times. As Acts 4 told us, Herod and Pontius Pilate, even being, uh, intent, you know, I mean, uh, they, were, they were set on their wicked ways, but yet they were executing the plan of God by crucifying the Son of God for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. Amazing. So let us also pray, brothers and sisters, that all of us in this room, that we would have a fresh vision of the glory of God. The gospel will help us see that clearly. So we're going to look at two characters today. We love characters, right? They're both in the book of Luke, and they both had encounters with Jesus. And I'm sure that many of you have heard messages on these two characters. And I'm going to tell you that we're not going to go very deep into the text. But we're uh, so if if you want to if you want to do like a deep, thorough study, okay, I'll give you the passages and read read through them this week. But we're going to run through this for the purpose of understanding the heart of our Lord, as well as the barriers that we have to embrace the gospel. Because guess what? Every single one of us has barriers. Whether you want to admit it or not, I I have many. Our first character is a rich ruler in Luke 18, 18 through 30. 
We're just going to be going through verse 27. And the glorious thing is this. Jesus ran into all types of people, right? Here we have a rich ruler. Perhaps the rich ruler could have been a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, the supreme court of ancient Israel, composed of 71 members. So we know that Jesus encountered people, uh, members of the San- Sanhedrin. He encountered Pharisees. He encountered Sadducees. He encountered rich folks, poor folks, sick folk, healthy folk, you name it. Everywhere Jesus went, Jesus encountered all these different types of people. And one thing that is clear to me as I read these encounters, Jesus loves everyone. He's blown away. And we're going to see that here. At the same time, Jesus never caters his message to his audience in the sense that, okay, I don't know if I'm going to you know, lay down this truth. He's always hammering down the truth, which you love, no matter what audience it is. And it's here in verse 18 that the rich ruler poses a question. The question is this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question shows right off the bat immediately how far off this man is on his understanding of salvation. He wants to earn eternal life and apparently thinks there are certain good things that he can do. But when we study the historical context, we can't blame him. This time, many Jews believe that a certain act of kindness could win eternal life. That's why he's saying, hey, teacher, what do I do? This young man, assuming his stance was right, wanted to see if Jesus knew it, knew the act that he needed to perform. And here's Jesus' reply to that question, verse 19. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus gives us some clarity by correcting this man's thinking. He's basically saying, look, buddy, you got it all wrong. In terms of salvation or pretty much anything, only God is good. And in, in, in terms of the goodness required to gain eternal life, only God is good. This man didn't think that Jesus was God, but rather he was thinking that Jesus gained some measure of, of status by his good deeds. He was thinking that this Jesus is a good guy that had it all together, and he knew the secret to get into the kingdom of heaven. Then verse 20, Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When I read that years ago, I had a question. I thought to myself, wait a minute. Is there some standard then, Jesus? Is there some type of moral code of law that I have to conform to in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? And the quick answer is no. Because if there were, none of us would be able to get in. So he lifts off uh, these five commandments, the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth. What's interesting is all these commandments had to do with relationships with people. There's a good chance that this man did his best to keep the law and was a model citizen. But the point was was to show the law and what the law had demanded, what God had demanded through the law. And what was that? Perfection. It was perfection. And why? Because that's one of the attributes of God. He, God cannot compromise on himself, okay? He is who he is. And a quick primer on the law and covenant, God made a covenant with Abraham, and a covenant was more than a promise. We don't have time to go deep into this, but you need to understand. And if you wanted to read more and more, read some on covenant theology. But God made a covenant to be in relationship with Israel, and the law was given as like the stipulations of that relationship. Look, so God is saying, look, I want to be in relationship with you, but I'm perfect, holy, and awesome, okay? I mean, this is who I am, but I desire to be in a relationship with you. 
here's the law. Here are, here are the, ter- like the terms. This is how you're going to interact with the perfect holy God. That's why we have all the Old Testament commandments of sacrifice and so forth. So we have to understand that context of covenant and law as well. And he couldn't compromise who he, uh, who he was. So what did the law do as well? As Romans tells us, it showed us how utterly sinful and depraved we are apart from Jesus Christ. Going on, Luke 18, 22 to 25. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So let's pause for a second. It's here that I need to say that you and I will not change the fact again that God will get glory and he will be glorified in one way or another. At the end times in Revelation, when the unrepentant sinner is thrown into the lake of fire for eternal torment, God is going to get glory because of his perfect justice. At the end times in Revelation, when the saints go marching in, God is going to get glory. So I tell you that because you and I have no ability to alter that. But the ability that you and I have is this. We have the ability to dishonor the name of God, and we have the ability to profane the name of God. And let's not forget that in Genesis, it tells us that you and I were created to be the image bearers of God. We're created in his image, his likeness, for the very purpose of reflecting his glory, his attributes. We were created to be in that relationship with a triune God. And he created us for relationship, for the purpose of his glory. So in other words, he created us so that we would worship him and we would respond in thanksgiving and praise. So when you give thanksgiving to God for what he's done through Jesus, you know what you're doing? You're glorifying him. When people come to Jesus and they see Christian community, guess what? God's being glorified because they're seeing his divine attributes and community. And do you guys know the Father's heart for people? In Mark's account of the rich ruler, Mark 10, verse 21, he's the only gospel writer that, that, that includes these, these words. In verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, the rich ruler, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. I wanted to talk about that concept then. Jesus loved this rich ruler. But so often as Christians, what we're known for is being a people that are condemning. We're known for what we stand against. You know, we're against this, we're against that. And a lot of people, a lot of friends of mine who, who used to be in the church aren't. They tell me, man, Christians are so hypocritical. Christians are, And we get into a lot of long, deep conversation. But what we need to realize is Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it. Do you know that? If you believe that, say amen. But the fact is this. Jesus came into a world that was already condemned. This world was already under the wrath of God. And if you want evidence from the scriptures, read Romans 1, 18 through 32. We are under the wrath of God. And then we come to the famous passage in John chapter 3, verse 16. I wanted to read a couple verses from there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus entered a condemned world. This is the heart of our Father, and the call is for everyone to come. He has not come to call the righteous, but the sick. And believe me, you and I and every person in this room, we are sick. Utterly and totally depraved. And if you have never seen your sin, you have never seen it. It's our sin that put the Savior on the cross. It's our sin that separates us from God. And yet we take it so lightly. Once we're forgiven us today, tomorrow. Jesus literally, I love this because he literally, even we know that he did not come to condemn the world, but he literally exposes two idols in the rich ruler's heart. There are two things. The first one is self-righteousness. And the second is attachment to wealth. Disclaimer, okay? This is not a passage to justify that, you know what, if you're rich, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not it. The point is, all of us have idols. For some, it may be wealth. For others, it may be a person. It could be a number of things. But the point is is that uh, there are real barriers to the gospel. John Calvin, the Reformed uh, uh, theologian and pastor, he explains it this way. He says, all of our hearts are idol-making factories. That's what we do. The heart is just pumping out idols, one after another. And that's what we're prone to do. The rich ruler thought you could somehow work your way into the kingdom of heaven, and he conformed to what was required. Do this, do that, got it, done. Check, 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 I'm good. What next? What next? Tell me. And don't think for a second that this rich ruler was not insincere. He was like one of the most sincere people. The way in, in, the, way in the Greek how he approaches him and the way the question is asked, with utmost respect, this was a very sincere man. He just had a skewed understanding. And some of you in this room also have a skewed understanding of it as well. Jesus got straight to the root problem. He got straight to the heart. He knew exactly what hindered the rich ruler from placing his trust in him. And here in America, we also have a skewed understanding of the gospel. We've watered it down and we've narrowed it to, you know what, if you signed a card or if you raised your hand, you're good. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching a works-based salvation Firmly committed to salvation by grace through faith alone. But what I'm saying is this. I think the irony is that salvation is a free gift from God, but it's going to cost you everything. I read a book on the gospel by an author by the name of J.D. Greer, and it's phenomenal. He tells the story of his daughter playing in the sandbox. and uh, <clears throat> She began pouring water from a water can into her sandbox, And her dad came up to her and asked her what she was doing. And she says, Daddy, I need the sand to grow. See, there's not much left. and I need need, need it to grow. The dad then explained that, you know what? That's not how sand grows. It's not alive. The only way to increase the amount of sand in, in the sandbox is for Daddy to pour more in. And this illustration was used to explain why religious change falls short. See, this is how religion changes you. He explains, religion pours it on. It gives you a lot of stuff to do, Bible studies to go to, new habits to add to your life, things to say and not to say. And this is what theologians have called mechanical change. Do this, do that, do this. And you're growing. But compare this to how a tree grows. A tree grows and bears fruit because it's alive. 
fruits grow and come alive because of the life inside. And this is how the gospel changes people. The gospel comes to a person. It grips their soul. The, 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 the sinful heart that only desired sin is now awakened and desires the glory of God and fruit begins to bear. That's what we call organic change. And as a church and as Christians, we need to be very careful that we're not promoting a theology of mechanical change. Because I'm telling you what, that's kind of our natural tendency when we're, when we're ministering to each other. It's like almost like we're, we're, we're not sure that we should just point them to the gospel. We should point them to Jesus. So we begin to think practically and pragmatically. Oh, you know what? You're already super busy, so why don't you just do more things? Or you know what? You're struggling with sin. Just read the Bible and pray. Now, granted, those things are, are great. But the, the, the issue that we're tackling that Jesus has exposed in the rich ruler, all right, is, is, is religious change, okay, change apart from the gospel, that's disastrous. It will take a person to utter ruin. You know how? Because if a person has not been transformed by the gospel, and I'm telling them, hey, you know what? You need to read the word. You need to pray. You need to give more. You need, you need to go to church. You need to do this. You need to do that. You know what's happening? I'm pouring religion onto a heart that does not want it, that has not been transformed. And what that's going to do is this person is going to begin to get burdened. And when they get burdened, they're going to begin, their, their, their view of God is going to be skewed. That's why it's so critically important, gospel regeneration. And I'm not saying that we don't ever do things that we don't want to. All of us can relate. Sometimes I don't want to read the word. Many times I don't want to pray. Many times I don't want to do what Jesus did. But the point is this, that if the extent of your faith in Jesus is achieving some right behavioral standard, then yes, you're setting yourself up for disaster. See, the problem is with mechanical change is that you're laying religion on a heart that loves other things. It doesn't have Jesus as primary. See, religious change, things to do apart from Christ, cannot really change us. And the reason why this cha- th- these things cannot change us is because it fails to deal with the root problem. And what is that, brothers and sisters? Sin. Today, I wanted to get, kind of break down these terms, functional gods and functional saviors. They didn't originate with me. In fact, John Calvin and Martin Luther ha- had taught on, on these topics. Uh, pastors like Tim Keller... Um, uh, J.D. Greer have also really helped flesh us uh, to understand this concept of functional gods and saviors. In order to understand a functional God, we have to go back to the Garden of Eden and understand our original sin. The original sin of Adam and Eve was idolatry. That's why in, Paul explains in Romans one twenty five, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So you may be thinking, how is this idolatry? I don't see them bowing or praying to an idol. But the, way, the reason why we don't have a correct understanding is we fail to understand what worship is. Worship is this, all right? You worship whatever it is you deem most essential for life and happiness. Whatever is most critical for you for life and happiness, that is the very thing that you worship. And every person in this world worships something. No way around it. For Adam and Eve, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit was so important to them that they disobeyed God to get it. For us, it may be money, popularity, 
may be the approval of others. It may be marriage, a good marriage, a healthy family, achieving some sort of, of status at work or school, or maybe experiencing some type of sensual pleasure. When something becomes so important to you that it drives your behavior and it commands your emotions, you're worshiping it. You're willing to say no to God to get it. The Hebrew word for glory, it literally means weight. So to give something glory in your life, in other words, to worship it, is to give it so much weight that you couldn't imagine living without it. An idol can be almost anything. You know that even the good gifts of God can become an idol? Family, friends, dreams, even church. All good things, of course, but they become idols when we assign them this God-type weight. Ultimately, as we had seen here in, in this account of Adam and Eve, idolatry is behind all of our sin, right? We place this greater weight on something other than God. And whatever those things are that we feel like we can't live without, and it dictates and guides our behaviors, those are functional gods in our life. And these are, like I said, these are terms that both Martin uh, Luther and John Calvin talk about. Our physical bodies may not bow down to these things, but our hearts do, and it's the same exact thing. We are all prone to bow down to idols. All of us. As we discovered, all people are worshipers. We all worship something because it's who we are. Next thing is, the, is functional saviors. When Adam and Eve's eyes were opened after eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did they first become aware of? What did they become aware of? Their nakedness. They were ashamed. The early church fathers, Gregory and Athanasius, they explained that prior to their sin, Adam and Eve had been clothed in the love and acceptance of God, so their nakedness did not bother them. Now, having stripped themselves of God's love and acceptance, they were left with a sense of exposure, fear, guilt, and shame. And what did Adam and Eve do? They did the same thing you and I would do. I have a family of six, and Costco is like our second home. Okay? But can you imagine that you woke up one day, and you're in Costco, and you just woke up, and you, you looked at yourself, and you're naked. What is the first thing you're going to do? You're going to bolt for the clothing section at Costco. All of a sudden, the milk and eggs that your wife had told you to get, and that's, that's not priority number one. Priority number one is I've got to cover my nakedness. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. You want to get cover. All, I mean, Adam and Eve did, did that same exact thing, and it's because their clothes made them feel more secure. All of mankind has been on the same quest ever since, brothers and sisters. We try to cover the shame of our nakedness by establishing our worthiness in some other way. We're trying to find something that sets us, sets us apart from other people. I want to be smarter. I want to be stronger. I want to be more athletic. I want to be, uh, you know, I just, I just want to be better. Because it's in those things that we find our worth. You know what? If I have a good job, if I go to good college, if I do this, if I marry this person, then guess what? I've established my worth. We're using those things to cover our nakedness. And we'll use just about anything to establish our worth. People who aren't religious do this all the time as well. Just as much as people who are religious. Atheists feel like they're fair-minded and good citizens. Hollywood celebrities want to get involved in social uh, campaigns. Because it's the right thing to do. We're all looking for something to establish our worthiness. 
you know, it's, when you think about it, <laughs> it's, one pastor said, it's all like we're, we're part of this big survivor episode and we're all on it. And God is the judge and we're just trying to say, God, this is why I should remain on the island. The things we use to establish our worthiness, those are what are functional saviors in our life. So we see that in this rich man, do we not? This understanding of the functional God and functional Savior helps us understand the core of the issue. And in verse 26 now, it says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The disciples, okay, and the people around were baffled at this statement because in their mind, all right, this man was rich because he was blessed by God. We don't have time to get into prosperity gospel, okay? But it was kind of a similar thing in that way. You know what? You're rich. You have health. You're blessed by God. And now Jesus is saying that, that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. These people are like, oh, my goodness. If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And you have, to, you have to love this statement. With man, it's impossible. <laughs> what, is, what, is God tell, what is Jesus telling us? <laughs> it's only God. So now these disciples are perplexed. You've got to love Jesus' response. And it's now that we're going to build this bridge one chapter over to Luke 19. Here we have a rich man in, in Luke 18 that encountered Jesus, could not enter the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus made a critical point that, that only God can do it. And here in Luke 19, we have a wee little rich man. You got to love Luke, right? Luke, the physician. But Luke, theologians, uh, they say one thing about Luke is he's a historian. He accurately puts things down in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Right? There's a reason why everything is placed there in, in the places it's placed. And the reason why I love the gospel of Luke is it's written to a Gentile audience. And it... And it I'm a Gentile. Are there any other Gentiles in here? And, and like, like, I love the gospel of Matthew, but the gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. So Luke, understanding that he's writing the Gentiles, he, he, he breaks things down for me. He explains the, the reason behind the customs. And Luke focuses a lot of times on, on the one-to-one encounters with Jesus. And we can all relate to that. I can relate with the rich ruler. So often I've walked away sad because of what Jesus demanded. Coming and then, and then looking back and saying, what a fool I was. My surrender for his righteousness, they don't even compare. But yet for years I kept refusing it. And that's some of you in this room as well. And here we come to Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus. Love Jesus more. Let's just get to this. Luke 19. Um, Luke 19, one right off the bat, right? It says, Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. We just left a rich man. We come to another rich man, okay? Scriptures tell us the rich ruler was extremely rich. Well, guess who else was extremely rich? Zacchaeus. He was not just a tax collector. The scriptures tell us that he was a chief tax collector, in other words, he had tax collectors working under him. He had some kind of multi-level marketing scheme to where, like, you know, the commissions, the, the underlings were connecting. He, he got all that back. So Zacchaeus was extremely rich. And you have to understand how rich he was. This is the background. 
Rome had a difficult time collecting taxes from conquered cities because people would buy and trade on the black market. Why would they do that? They didn't have to pay a tax. How many of you guys would love it if you didn't have to pay taxes? Okay, so, I mean, we understand, we understand the sentiment behind there. And let's just say that Rome did not like that because they felt that they were getting gypped. So Rome came up with a great idea. Okay, we're going to hire locals. They know the black market. They know the, they know the alleyways. They know the ins and outs and the systems. They speak the lingo. They know the secret handshakes. All right, we're going to hire locals to collect taxes. And so they, they grab a group of locals, and they say, all we want is X percent. Let's say 10%. Whatever you collect, we could care less. Rome just wants 10%. So what would tax collectors often do? They would get their 10% and a whole lot of more. So you can imagine Zacchaeus overseeing a district of tax collectors who were all in the pursuit of it for the love of money. So Rome would auction off districts of their conquered cities. They would provide a garrison of troops with the tax collector, and they would collect away. So you can imagine how these tax collectors got very rich. And this has to ring a bell in your mind. Let's think of Zacchaeus now. Okay, we know he was filthy rich. And his pathway to riches was selling out family members and friends. Which immediately shows us what his idol was. And that he was willing to do whatever it took to gain that. And he didn't seem to mind. And the only way you would consent to being a tax collector was if you consented to doing that. And I tell you this because we need to paint a picture of Zacchaeus and how utterly wicked he was as well. One pastor comments uh, the Jewish, about the Jewish Mishnah. He says that tax collectors were so loathsome that they should not even be considered people. You were free to lie to tax collectors, it said, because lying to an animal was not a sin. So just so you know how people felt, all right, about these tax collectors. And you have to love Jesus, okay? Jesus, okay, with his band of 12 disciples, he had within that band Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Have you ever been at a family union or kind of dinner, dinner party where you're sitting at the table and you have this radical Republican and radical Democrat, and it just starts to, uh, you know, like, like tempers are rising, can you imagine the conversations that Jesus had at the dinner table with Matthew here and Simon there? Simon the zealot, you traitor Matthew. And I, I don't know, but just interesting observation. So we see here that Jesus or Zacchaeus had a personal encounter and experience with Jesus Christ. The rich ruler had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Verses 3 to 4, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was so small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Yes, we all know that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was a man of, short, uh, of small in stature. He was short. And what's interesting in verse 4 is this, is, yes, he ran ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree, but Why? Maybe we can assume that one of the reasons why is because he was so despised. How many of you have ever been downtown to the 4th of J- July parade? And, uh, yeah, a lot of you. Well, those of you that have been down there, it's crowded. It's packed. And, uh, you know, I have kids. And uh, it's, it's amazing to see, like, the heart of people here in Anchorage. 
that, like, you know, when, when someone shorter than you wants to see the parade, most people in Anchorage are like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And they let them go in front of them because you can see over that person. But this wasn't the case for Zacchaeus. He was a man small in stature. He was short. But yet, I don't mean to read too much into the text, but maybe we can, this, we can picture how much hate people had for him. That they wouldn't let this small, short man get in front of them who would not hinder their view. And it's almost like they were collecting together trying to leave him out. And we see here Zacchaeus had to climb up in the sycamore tree to get a view of Jesus. It just shows me something was stirring in Zacchaeus' heart. I don't know what, but he wanted to see Jesus for a reason. He was desperate to see him. Something was going on in his soul. Some theologians comment that a man of his stature to climb up in a tree was a shameful thing as well. Here we come to verse 5. This is what we titled, Jesus has an appointment with Zacchaeus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Very interesting, because in verse 1, it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And what's interesting about that is that there were other ways to Jerusalem, but he chose to make a stop to Jericho. Why? Why? Because he had an appointment with Zacchaeus. Let's remember that it's Jesus. It's not Zacchaeus that chose Jesus. It's Jesus that had an appointment with Zacchaeus. Amen. And Jesus has an appointment with some of you today as well. And we would be fools to think that we can trick him. Or hide things from him. And I think so often that we're, we fear what, it, what, like what Jesus would demand of us. You know, an, an illustration was given that if uh, the heart was a home and Jesus came in, we're comfortable with Jesus sitting on, on the couch. We would welcome him in and we'd say, yes, go sit down. Would you like a cup of coffee, Jesus, or Red Bull or something? I don't know how you're feeling today. And Jesus cl- kindly declines, no, I'm good. And then, the, you know, we, so we begin to like, we're just a little awkward and uncomfortable. And then Jesus gets up and we're like, that's weird. And he begins to walk around, right? And he begins to open your kitchen cupboards. And then you're like, okay, that's kind of weird, but it's cool. Maybe he's hungry. And then he starts to go upstairs to where there's closed rooms. And we begin to stop. We're like, Jesus, what are you doing? You can't go in there. Interesting is that's how a lot of us think. We think that we can hide things. Or we want to just give Jesus the living room of our life when Jesus is demanding, demanding total surrender. That Jesus, every room in this house is, is open to you. You want it to open a linen closet? You want, to, you want to color organize everything? Or you want to shape organize everything? I mean, by all means, Jesus, have it. So the question here in verse 6 then is, how do you respond when you see Jesus coming? Verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. This is so interesting. And let me give another disclaimer that we're not promoting a teaching here where, where, where uh, as, we, as we get more into the text, that, be, it, w- that Zacchaeus was saved because he gave his money away to the poor. That's not what we're saying at all. In verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into be the guest of a man who was a sinner. 
grumbling. The Pharisees knew how to grumble. And all the other religious leaders did this. This word grumbling carries the meaning of the buzzing of bees. And it just, as I read this, it reminded me that the gospel will always meet resistance. And maybe here today, you don't have like this pack of Pharisees following you. But guess what? You have a pack of Pharisees that live inside your heart. I do. And as even the gospel, as you're looking at the life of Jesus and you read it, there's always some kind of resistance. I can't do that. That would cost a lot, Jesus. And it's easy for us to judge and hate on the Pharisees and to say, you know what? I would have never done that. But like I said, there's an inner Pharisee in all of us. And even Jesus eating with Zacchaeus, this was the big deal. Because maybe today it's not a big deal that you have someone over for dinner and you can have an informal meeting. During this time in history, it was a big deal to have dinner with someone and to have them to your house. You uh, You were basically saying we have an intimate relationship. We're friends. So Jesus going to the house of a chief tax collector, these Pharisees were like, what is he doing? Does he even know who Zacchaeus is? Verse 8 through 10, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Experiencing this salvation that only comes through Jesus, that is what leads to change. It's not the... Like, let's not put the cart before the horse and say that, oh, okay, you know, Zacchaeus gave. That's why he was blessed. No. The fact that Jesus walked into his house. You know what? If I was Zacchaeus, I'd be thinking, Jesus, I can't have you over to my house. Jesus, do you know who I am? Do you know how I made a living, Jesus? Do you know how many family members I screwed over, Jesus? You want to come to my house? You know what that means? That means that everyone's going to ostracize you because you're, you're going to have fellowship with me. Jesus, are you sure you want to do that? I would feel really bad if you caught that flack because of me, Jesus. Are you sure you want to do that? But now, do you, are you beginning to understand what Zacchaeus had experienced? Who knows what conversations occurred at that dinner table? We have no, no, we have no, no writing about it. But that conversation must have been good, amen, to where he's like, behold, every wrong I've done. Jesus, I just want to make it right. Zacchaeus went above and beyond the Levitical, uh, the Levitical command that if you wronged a neighbor, right, he went up way above and beyond. And that's not, that's not giving credit to Zacchaeus, but it's just showing that when, when the gospel of Jesus in an encounter happened, it grips your heart. And you can't help but do something radical. Zacchaeus responded. And it was this encounter with Jesus. And this is what I want to share with you today. We are saved by faith alone. But let me tell you that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. When the gospel grips your heart, you will see your sin. 
you will see what holds your heart. You will see what idols your heart bows down to. And when the gospel of grace unleashes and sets your heart free, you will respond with radical repentance. We are fools if we think that radical repentance only occurs once. As Christians, we are going to, the more we go closer to Christ, the more we're going to repent. It's like C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, you know what? When he's he's counseling a fellow Christian brother, he's like, I'm no better than you. I'm just a patient in the hospital who's been here a little longer than you have. Has the gospel gripped your heart? And how will you respond to Jesus' call? Brother, sister, I must come to your house today. Are you going to put up some kind of excuse? Jesus, I'm not good enough. He knows that. That's why he's there. You know, Jesus, I just don't have time for you. I mean, I'm really busy here. What's going to be your response? Are you going to gladly welcome him in? How will you respond? Now, we look at Zacchaeus, right? After here, verse 10, it goes into the parable of the ten minas. And what I often wonder in Scripture is what happens in between? What happened after, right? Do you ever wonder that? Like, what, what happened to Zacchaeus? Like, did he see the risen Savior? Like, you know, did he, you know, like, you know, like was he at the crucifixion? What, you know, like, I have all these questions. And I can only speculate, but there are some anchors that we can grip onto. Jesus, remember, said that salvation had come to Zacchaeus, right? Jesus claimed it <laughs> on Zacchaeus' life. So one of the anchors I can place in is that Zacchaeus was saved. The eternal security of the believer was set, not because of Zacchaeus, but because of what Jesus did. All right? So we, we, can, we can anchor that in. And I tell you that because I know that after that, all right, that it was, it, was a, it was a journey for Zacchaeus. When John the Baptist had preached the message of, of repentance in, in Luke earlier, he had preached, and then the tax collector was like, John, what do we do? What did John tell them? Don't collect any more than you need to. So I know that Zacchaeus could have remained a tax collector. Whether he did or not, I don't know. But I know that he was gripped by the gospel, forever changed. I know that that kept him secure. I know that there was always this pull to go back to the old life. The love of money for him. All right? To go back to it. But what anchored Zacchaeus was the gospel. Let me, let me tell you how it anchors us today. When we, when our hearts are gripped by the gospel of Jesus, this is what we become secure in. We become secure in our identity. Does that make sense? Because a lot of times, we, all of us here have so many insecurities, and, and, and we bow down to them because maybe it's fear of rejection or it's fear of something. But when we stabilize ourselves and we look at the glorious gospel, we realize, Jesus... There's nothing that I can do that will make you love me more or make you love me less. Your love is perfected in in, in what you've done on the cross. So why am I condemning myself? Because there is not a court in this universe that I can be condemned for my sin because I'm in Christ. And then I begin to dispel that lie that, you know what? My identity is in Jesus. It's not about these things that are setting me apart. 
In Ephesians 6, right, the, the illustration is put on the helmet of salvation. Do you know why Paul used that illustration? Because in battle, there were soldiers that they called like these broad, they had these long swords. And the, the, the sole goal of them was to swing these swords for the purpose of decapitation. And what would keep, and you lost your head, you're dead, right? Are there any doctors here? So it's a pretty, pretty brilliant strategy. But what did Paul say? Put on the helmet of salvation. Withstanding those blows. Because isn't the enemy always trying to tell us, you're not good enough? Look at you. You call yourself a Christian? Look at you. I, I don't know about you. I get that all the time. And then slowly begin to believe it. And then I, I look at the glorious gospel. I, I, I read his word. And I read these encounters of his love for me that Jesus, in spite of myself and my sinfulness, you love me perfectly. Has the gospel gripped your heart? In closing, I wanted to give you a resource here. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm going to email it so that it's, it's up on the website. Uh, but it's by an author by the name of David Powelson. And uh, he's a Christian counselor and pastor. And uh, th- these questions are quoted in a book called How People Change, written by Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane. And I recommend any of you to read it if you want to understand how people change, how the gospel changes people. And what I love about the, the theology behind it is that the, the premise is that they're not consulting pop psychology or, or philosophy. They're saying, how does real biblical change occur in the life of a person? And these questions, I'm only going to read 10. There's 34 of them. And put them up on the website. I challenge all of you, okay? I've done this before, to walk through these questions one by one. And I tell you this, it will rip your heart apart in a good way. Some in a bad way. That's not the intent. The intent is to really get to the heart of the issue to, so, that, so that your idols and the things that you set your affections on are exposed. And I'm going to read to you 10 of them. Like I said, there's 34, but here's 10. First question, simple. What do you love? Is there something you love more than God or your neighbor? I think that in itself is like just, whoa. You could spend a lot of time there. Number two, what do you want? What do you desire? What do you crave? Long for and wish. Whose desires do you obey? Number three, what do you seek? What are your personal expectations and goals? What are your intentions? What are you working for? Number four, where do you bank your hopes? What hope are you working toward or building your life around? Number five, what do you fear? Fear is the flip side of desire. For example, if I desire your acceptance, then I fear your rejection. Number six, what do you feel like doing? This is a synonym for desire. Sometimes we feel like eating a gallon of ice cream or staying in bed or refusing to talk, etc., etc. Number seven, what do you think you need? In most cases, a person's felt needs picture his or her idle cravings. Often what we have called necessities are actually deceptive masters that rule our hearts. They control us because they seem plausible. They don't seem so bad on the surface, and it isn't sin to want them. However, I must not be ruled by the need to feel good about myself, to feel loved and accepted, to feel some sense of accomplishment, to have financial security, to experience good health, to live a life that is organized, pain-free, and happy. Number eight, what are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What are you really going after in the situations and relationships of life? What are you really working to get? 
Number nine, what makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? Where do you find your garden of delight? What lights up your world? What food sustains your life? What really matters to you? What are you living for? Number 10, where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, and escape? When you're fearful, discouraged, and upset, where do you run? Do you run to God for comfort and safety or to something else? To food, to others, to work, to solitude? Those are some deep questions. And I'm asking myself these questions regularly because I am a sinner in need of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, that's all of us. We don't ever outgrow the need for the gospel. That's the lie of the enemy that you don't need it anymore or that's just a pathway to something else. And as you go through this, what you're going to discover is that God is going to bring stuff up. And what I want to challenge you with this is that you would approach this with a humble heart. Because as, as you do this, it's not fun. Like I, Years ago, I, I, entering the ministry, I realized that one of my idols was people-pleasing. And as God exposed that, oh, man, it just gut-wrenching. And God had to keep reminding Chris, you know, I'm your pleasure. You find your identity in me, not on pleasing other people. And then I remember just, just coming to the Lord in repentance. So that's why I want to challenge you. Come to this with a humble heart and say, God, reveal to me, right? As we're in this corporate time of seeking the face of God, we're asking God to show us, are we not? In the book of James, it says, like, when we look into the word of God, it's like a mirror. And, you know, we all wake up in the morning. The first thing we do is we, 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 we see what damage has been done, don't we not? Like what, what we have on our face, what drool stains we have on our, on our mouth, and what eye boogers are everywhere. And what James says is, you're a fool. If you look in the mirror and you see all that and you just walk away, you forget who you are. So as, as these things are exposed, it's not for condemnation. It's so that the gospel would grip your heart and that you would be set free. That you would be able to live for his glory. And that's the prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, just a simple prayer. I just pray that there has just been one person that has seen you today. God, we want to give you the glory. And I'm praying, God, that you would begin to grip our hearts, that we would no longer settle with the status quo. God, forgive us because all of us in this room, we seek other things other than you, God. We fail to repent. We fail to, to, to take our sin and we forget that it's, that it's the same sin that puts you on that cross. And God, I'm asking you to do a great work in the hearts of people, no matter how long anyone has been saved or, or, or whether they have not that you would grip everyone's heart by the gospel of Jesus. Because I know that when you do, you are going to set people free. People are going to see revival. There's a pastor that said, if you want to see revival, draw a circle in the ground. Stand in that circle and ask God to revive everything in that circle. And God, we are praying that. 
Father, I'm praying that you would begin to revive our hearts, that you would bring the dead things. You would take our dead souls and make them alive in Christ Jesus. I pray that if there are issues that we've been putting on the back burner, things that we've been struggling with, God, the solution isn't to add more to our life or to, or to just read a book or to, or, or to seek counseling for the sake of seeking counseling. The only solution is Jesus. So I'm praying, God, that we would, we would have an encounter with Jesus. That we would begin to see his attributes and we would begin to, to understand that and, and knowing that when we do, that's when we see your glory. So God, I'm praying for families. I'm praying for people here today. I'm praying for folks who maybe have a broken relationship with someone. Maybe there are husbands and wives that have been, been, been distant. I, I don't know, God, you know the heart. But I'm just praying that the gospel would begin to transform those relationships. That there would be a radical repentance instead of a, a, instead of a blaming. There would be a repentance, a turning back to God. And an empowerment of the spirit to allow the life of Jesus to live through us. God, I'm praying for us as a church corporately that the power of the gospel would fill our lives. That the Spirit of God would fill our lives. And that we would begin to be bold. And we would begin to proclaim the message of the gospel through, through of course, our words, but also through our, through our deeds. That we would not ever present that we're this perfect community, that we're aesthetically uh, good-looking. No, but that we are sinners transformed by the power of the gospel. And God, we are asking that we would begin to see miraculous things, Lord. I'm praying, God, we would see more conversions. I'm praying that we would see people baptized, God. I'm praying that we would see just, just, just people set free from years of bondage to sin and, and, and suffering. And God, I know that that's all possible because it'll all come from you. And I'm just so privileged and I know that every believer here is privileged that that as the church, we just get to be involved with that. And God, we are humbly approaching you and just begging you to fill us and use us so that we can bring glory back to your name, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. And I pray that people are just captured by your love for them. Be glorified, be lifted high. All glory honor and power be given to you forever and ever. Amen. Why don't we go ahead and stand together?